Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. Also, we have a Patreon page if you want to support us as we continue telling these important stories. You can find that at patreon.com and search adoption colon the making of me. Again, that's patreon.com search adoption colon the making of me. And please remember to subscribe, share and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hello, here we are. Episode four, chapter four. We are discussing loss and the mourning process is the name of the of the chapter, the title of the chapter from the primal wound. I actually maybe think this is the biggest chapter. So I thought chapter two was, but now I'm like, oh, a couple things. Right at the very beginning, there's always a quote at the beginning of these chapters. Mm-hmm. I won't read the whole quote by Gilda France, but Part of it is the etymology of the word mourn means to remember and stems from the same root as memory. And one part I thought was interesting at the end of her little quote is mourning and depression are other names of abandonment. There's a whole part about this at the beginning where it talks about the need to mourn. And they used to just think babies were babies. And and it depends. You know, some people come into the adoption process at four years old, five years old. They've been in foster care and orphanage, that's a whole nother ball game. But even little babies, they think now it imprints on their cell, their psyches, that there's a death of mourning. And I think the biggest thing that really stuck out for me in this was that when the baby's taken away, the baby's going through a depression and all the stages of grief of depression. Yes. And I thought, okay, so they're going through the whole upset search around then the acting out you know babies crying babies crying can't be comforted then the withdrawal and the withdrawal often happens and then i like they got into the adopted parents which we never really think about this this is sad for the adopted parents the new mom's all excited to have her baby home and feels rejected by that baby i know i it had never occurred to me that piece of it or that you know and also we don't know. We were adopted as tiny babies. I yes. I don't know if my mom would remember. I might ask her how we reacted, that we went through those stages of grief. We wouldn't remember that necessarily, but maybe parents remember that or something. Or parents um, think, oh, my baby's not really into me. Or, I mean, it's so important. I it's know a natural human kids, reaction, right? To Yes. Our kids just loved us. And like other people would be kind of sad when the baby was you know, the grandparents would be like, oh, the baby just wants mommy. Just okay. wants mommy. Yeah. That I'm sure a lot of adopted mommies have been through. What the heck? Yes. It's just, little, it's just a little baby. Why aren't they so into me? I'm comforting. But the thing is, is babies go through grief. And because they don't teach people this, or we didn't know this maybe about, I think a few psychologists knew this, but not the general public knowing this, is that parents aren't armed for this. So they just feel rejected themselves. Then there becomes an actual, not always, there becomes a distance with the biological mom and the new baby. The adopted mom and the, and the new the, baby. Oh, sorry. Yes. The adopted yeah. mom. Excuse yeah. Me. And that is very interesting to me. I have a thing I wanted to name this chapter. I was going to call you and tell you ahead of time. Heisman. Okay. Because I do something called the Heisman. Everyone who watches football knows the Heisman trophy is the arm out, right? So it's like, you know, I do this to everybody in my life since I was a baby relationships. I do it to my husband, Bill. He calls me Heisman. So it's like, <laughs> I do the push away even from a young age. And it talks about that in here. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Other adopted friends I have tell me the same thing. They don't like to be really touched so much, grabbed, hugged. Once you're close to someone, you can do that. But I don't like to be that. That's an interesting. It's like this image of just, oh, oh. Yes. you know, like, and I, I did it to everybody as a baby. And I know it offended a lot of relatives. I think my parents were pretty cool because there was five years between my brother and I. And they're like, ah, babies are all different, you know. But I could see what if my mom, Mary Lee, never had Will, my brother. She might be like, what? My baby doesn't do the things they're supposed to do right away. Because I know I was a self-soother. 
she definitely said I self-soothed. I wasn't really, you know, and later I became a cuddler and all that, but they do say that takes time. I thought I did think it was interesting, the stages of grief that applying the despair comes, you know, and then yes, it was really an enlightening chapter. It was because I think I thought, we don't think babies are people. We know they're people. Right. It's like, almost like we think of them as puppies or something, yes. you know? <laughs> When in, a, become, in a way, when does a baby become people? But they're actually, yeah, <laughs> they're actually people with stages of grief. So I'm sure with, that if- with high, you know, with very deep levels of understanding, it's just not the ability to communicate that isn't there. So when you can't it's, communicate, you assume there isn't. It's fascinating. Higher intelligence, I think. I think that's what it is. It's fascinating. Even after a child has become attached to the new mother, the experience which happens to adopted children, those who have suffered the loss of a parent through death, appears to be similar. There's a fear of further loss, the loss of another parent, either by death or desertion. This may be manifest as a separation anxiety, but is often mistaken for a strong attachment. Uh-huh. Isn't that? Yeah. <laughs> Leading into that, the part you just read gets into the place about that a child sometimes would rather have a death happen than an abandonment. I yes. Thought, I was like, okay, that's weird. Like they can handle death. Like if Someone well, dies in your family. It's final and there's no... Yes. No one chose to leave you. Yes. This chapter has so many aha moments. Just even for psychological development of children beyond adoption, I was thinking, God, kids in war-torn countries, babies that have lost their parents tragically through a mother in childbirth. I mean, they must go through the exact same thing. It's fascinating. The thread that I thought was so interesting is about the physical symptoms from the emotional trauma, the physical symptoms, and a lot of it being stomach issues and that many, many adoptees have reported having. I don't remember having any of those. Doesn't mean I didn't, but I did think that when I got through all that, I was like, I don't know that I did. And I don't, I don't remember. But then I saw beginning of this paragraph in my research adoptees who acted out oh that's the part i was trying to find have fewer physical <laughs> symptoms than those who were compliant yes. this makes sense since neurotic behavior seems to relieve the need for a somatic response that made sense for me because that how i handled it was just acting out like a the acting out part is sort of uh, the thing they touch on in this chapter is the child starts to find it like they want to abandon first before they're abandoned that's always been a thing with me in relationships i always broke up with somebody before they could hurt me or if a friend was going to reject me i'd walk away first you know this kind of thing and it's that it's the same thing as what you're talking about the acting out is is like i'm gonna do this yes and the good girl thing even though it's not the good girl but the belonging thing comes up again in this chapter and i was like okay this is all just so crazy (laughs) I did like a similar thing. I would choose highly unavailable men that, you know, so, so it was just inevitable what the conclusion would be, you know, it's a flip side of the coin, but same thing. Self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And it takes a long time to work through all these things and to not feel... Well, it's an ever evolving, like I've said that before, I I repeat myself (laughs) in this podcast. (laughs) We both do, but if you only listen to one or two episodes, you won't know. (laughs) But that's not what we want. We want you to listen to all episodes. (laughs) And go, gosh, they repeat themselves so much. (laughs) Like what? Um, Yeah, no, it all stood out to me. I mean, I just thought there were so many aha moments. We should ask people if they remember any of this when they come on the show about being sick or if they did the Heisman, the rejecting, or how they feel about abandonment. Now, that's my biggest fear is I actually always think I'm pretty sick. You always think I'm really secure. So, oh, I'm really secure and all this until I feel like I might get abandoned. Then I am like not secure. Oh, I'm the worst. (laughs) That's good. Any potential relationship, you know, men listening to this is like, they're going to run far away. (laughs) I think you should actually log on to our YouTube channel just to watch Sarah do that because that was awesome. (laughs) You know, the demon comes out. I think for me, that's what has happened in the past. When my husband and I go through anything and he's like, so, you know, my husband's wonderful. He's pretty easy going. I'll be like, you're not going to leave me. I go through this like, right? So like, you're not going to leave me, right? He's like, what the? <laughs> no, I was going to get milk. Like, it's not. 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's funny that it's just I think, oh, I'm so secure. I can be on my own. I can do and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm I'm not. <laughs> yes. I think this was me for a long time. Last yeah. paragraph, trying to avoid loss causes many adoptees to avoid intimate relationships. Bing, 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 circle. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. We've summed up Louise and Sarah's issues. We're going into part two. So I think it's going to get even more yeah. intense from here on Because out. it's what happens to the baby, then how it manifests into yes, yes, the person. I'm holding off on reading. I haven't been reading the whole book just because I really want to be savoring it when we discuss me, it. Me too. I, I found that that's better because I really delve into that chapter right before we have our podcast, as opposed to like, now what was it I read? I already know what's going to happen. Then you're bringing in things, you know. So it's really, it's a fun journey, this whole thing. It is. It's been really great. We've got quite a ways to go. So we're not going to run out of anything yet. Yep. And then now we move on to our guest. I'm really excited to have our guest. He's a friend of mine here in Kansas City. And I know his story. And I think you guys are all going to be really just blown away by it. So John Fry, how are you? Hi, I'm really, really excited to be a part of what you guys are doing. I think that, you know, has the uh, chance to, uh, be helpful to a lot of people. I'm very thankful that you guys have uh, asked me to uh, be a part of this. So my name's John, and I'm a 47 year old. I uh, I'm adopted, so I guess that's the the general theme here is you know <laughs> adoption, right? And I was adopted and brought to the United States when I was about a year and a half old. Actually, what's funny is before Sarah and Louise asked me to come onto this. I called my mom, my adopted mother, last weekend, and I told her that I was going to be coming onto this podcast and I wanted to get some information from her, but I also wanted to kind of let her know, hey, there's going to be some things that maybe if you happen to listen to this podcast might be difficult to hear, but you know, like, first of all, like, I want you to know that like, I absolutely love you and want you to know that things that I may say in there they may come across as hurtful, but I still want you to know I love you and that this is something I've uh, you know need to do. So it was kind of like I almost was calling to, to her to kind of get her permission, and yeah. and she was good with it. You know, me and my mother have had a strained relationship up until about six years ago. So anyway, I was adopted when I was a year and a half old. I was brought here from Vietnam as part of something called Operation Baby Lift. What happened was at the end of the Vietnam War. The South was had fallen to the North, and Saigon was, you know, was the capital of the, of the South, and the Northern were marching in. And so, I don't know who hatched the idea, but there was this idea that we are going to put a bunch of babies into airplanes and then fly them out of Vietnam to and scatter them across the yeah, the world, right? And you know, if you read about it, it's kind of controversial because some people will say it was the largest mass adoption event in the world. And then some people will say it was the largest mass kidnapping in the world. I was one of those children. There was about 3,000 of us. I happened to be at the time when I was, uh, before I was brought to the United States, I was in an orphanage. And it's, now it's referred to as Ho Chi Minh City, but it was Saigon at the time. And I was at an orphanage that was run by World Vision. And World Vision's still around. They're, they're a huge organization. They do a lot of, I believe they do a lot of good things in the world. Essentially, I was at this orphanage in Saigon at least twice. The first time I was there, I had a pneumonia. But then somewhere in the records, it shows that somebody came back and got me and brought me home. And then at some point, I was returned to the orphanage. And I think you have to understand that at the time during the war, I mean, there was a scarcity of food. If you're a mother trying to raise a child or having a baby in that type of situation, there's not a lot of opportunities to take care of your child. And so I think from what I understand was that the orphanages were kind of like safe havens for children. That's why some people consider it the kidnapping because they, a lot of mothers, I mean, there's bombs going off everywhere. They have no food. So they put the babies there to be safe yeah. and would come back and forth. Yeah. It wasn't like an orphanage. Like you think of maybe like 
Annie or uh, right. Oliver Twist, right? <laughs> right? Right? We certainly weren't singing, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, so you had these orphanages there, and like I said, I believe from my understanding is that families would take their children there because it was where they knew that they could get healthcare, be safe, you know, they could get fed. At some point, I got gathered up with the rest of these children, right? And this was a feel-good story that would like, you know, was a, a humanitarian effort. We're going to come in here and save babies, right? The U.S. had gotten their asses kicked. This was kind of a way to like save some face and go out on a, on a high note, right? You know, if you read the stories, the, the first plane that went out of Saigon with babies on it crashed. And mm. half of the passengers died, you know, it was like children, babies, children, and, you know, crew members. So that was kind of a setback, obviously. But then I guess the subsequent airlifts out of that were successful. So I was on an airplane and most of the children out of Vietnam went to either, my understanding was United States, Canada, France, Australia, and maybe Great Britain, I think, developed countries, you know, first world countries. What happened was this is something I've known about all my life. Like I knew this story. But it wasn't until about six years ago that I decided that I was going through painful transition. And part of that transition was due to my deferred emotional maintenance, deferred emotional maintenance. There were things a long time ago that I should have dealt with that made me who I am now, but also wounded me in such a way that you know I wasn't able to be, I guess, present or be the person I wanted to be especially in relationships, right? With, mm-hmm. Like my wife. So I decided about six years ago that I was going to go full bore into looking into, you know, my adoption and where I came from because I just like on a whim decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to Vietnam because that's where it seemed like, you know, maybe some of these questions will be answered and maybe I can get some closure, right? So if I go back to Vietnam and do this, that I would, somehow mend some of those things that were hurting inside me for so long. Right. So, and I, I think I've listened to years and uh, you know, uh, yes, you know, your guys's podcast and I've read, I've read other stories. And so I think adopted children, you know, I suffer from very similar things that a lot of adopted children from, you know, like mine manifest themselves like an abandonment issues, being able to be emotionally connected to people. It's mm-hmm. like, I want to be emotionally connected. I want to be close to people. But then yet, as, as soon as that happens, you know, it's like you want to drink from a water fountain, but instead when it is present to you, you're being drowned by a fire hydrant, right? Yeah. Just so much. And you just don't have a way to, for me, at least, I don't have a way to process it. I used to not be able to have a way to process this, right? So I decided I was going to go back to Vietnam and work on my shit by going and, and like, you know, trying to reconnect with this place that I left 46 years ago, 45 years ago. What happened was when I started going down that road, I did two things. I first, I contacted World Vision because I wanted to see if there's any records, right, of how I got to the United States, which cargo plane I came on. They were bringing children in through various entry points and stuff like that. What happened was I called World Vision and I met the guy who's the archivist for World Vision, and he's a historian and archivist. And he was, I told him my name and I told him my, my date of birth and stuff. And so he was able to kind of go back and find some, some tidbits, not, not like there was no smoking gun. So basically I found out, you know, and I- Did I, you I, find out your name, your, your birth I did. name? So my, my first name in, in Vietnamese is Lee, L-Y. So I became naturalized. Uh, my, when I was adopted, I was here in the States until I was about seven and then my parents went ahead and naturalized me, right? And so mm-hmm. on my naturalization papers, my birth name's on there. And so I kind of had that you know, going for me. And then I contacted this archivist and he was able to find out which plane I was on. Wow. And there was some like records that showed that I was actually not born in Saigon, but I was actually born in a decently sized city that's south, Kanta, Kanta. And so that's where it showed that I was uh, born at. Was that, but were you I, in the orphanage there or were you in an orphanage no, in Saigon? I think I, no, I was, I was in the orphanage in Saigon. So okay. somehow my, somebody who brought me up to Saigon made that journey up. You know, when, like when I was in Vietnam, 
I took a, a bus ride from Saigon down to uh, Kanta, and it was like a it was probably a two hour drive, right? You know, in a bus on a you know this is like modern roads now and stuff like that. So it's not during a war. So oh, it you know, must have been how, a huge journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, don't, I have no idea how the folks that you know, got me up to where I was at there, right? So wow. that's where I was apparently born at. And this gentleman, he put me in contact with this woman and her name's Elsie, I believe is her name. She was, her and her husband were in Vietnam around the same time that I was there. And I think maybe one, I, I believe maybe the same orphanage that I was in. Now, I don't think our times that, you know, like overlapped, but she was there you wow. know, at some point. And her husband, because her husband, if I remember right, her husband worked for World Vision and she was either a volunteer or a nurse at the orphanage where I, I believe that I was at. That's insane. Wow. Let, let, let me ask you quickly. Did you find out what cargo plane you were on and where it went and then you how you ended up, where you ended up? It's a, to a lesser extent, yes. So you grew so, up where? Well, okay, so what happened? I know, but our audience doesn't. <laughs> okay. So here's what happened. My parents, Liz and Jerry Fry, they're from the Midwest here. They somehow ended up in California, of all places, and were living in Irvine at the time. And they did not believe they could have children, right? So this is a common trope amongst adopted children, right? Like, yes. like you want to have kids of your own, adopt a kid, right? Like, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> they had been unsuccessful in having children. And so they had started the adoption process, not the Operation Baby Lift. Like you didn't start the adoption process, like knowing the Operation Baby Lift was going to happen, right? right? It was just like, we were already like, so they'd already been vetted because they had already gone through the adoption process. You know, my mom, my dad likes to tell me these stories, like, you know, like guys would show up and dig through their trash, right? Like, like, so they're like doing background. Oh yeah. Yeah. So my mom and dad were already gone down the road of trying to adopt a child. And then what, if I remember correctly, talked to my mother, you know, they basically, when Operation Baby Lift kind of came on, they basically called my parents up and they gave them a very short amount of time. They're like, all right, do you guys want a kid? Okay, we've got a kid. He's coming, right? He's like, I'm on a plane right now. You know, or like, and they didn't even know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. He's like, we have a children. We have, we have like, you know, the stork is coming, right? And so, so <laughs> literally out of the sky. Yes, yes. So like literally coming, right? And so I came into the US and that's where the timeline's a little vague. I was about a year and a half old when I got here and then I was in maybe one or two foster homes briefly, you know, like maybe like I would probably measure those in like weeks, you know, weeks or months, not, you know, like, mm-hmm. and so I believe that my mother and father finally, you know, took me in when I was, you know, probably like maybe 20 months old at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the clothes I was wearing were like, you know, like I guess just whatever they had, you know, t- to give children. Uh, whenever they got here. And so my mother thought, you know, she told me the story that, that when I came in there, I had these huge feet. Like it was like, 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 like you know, so like, here I am like, a, like, a, like almost like not quite a two-year-old, a little bit less than a two-year-old, but like, I was wearing like shoes that were like, you know, like Aww. four or five sizes bigger Aww. than me. And then come to find out what it was is they just put the wrong, like, like they put like, you know, threw some shoes, shoes on. That, yeah. Whatever shoes I could find. Right. So that's yeah. Aww. I will say that when I first met my mother and father, for the first time, I guess I went to my father first, you know, like I went to hug my father first instead of hugging my mother. And I've always got, you know, I think that maybe hurt my mom's feelings. Right. And so like set the tone or something. Possibly, possibly, you know, well, she's, um, she's a mom who can't have a baby. She's waiting for this baby, the baby yeah. comes you know, the, and she's so excited. And then that's that, you know, yeah. When my mom finally listens to this, we'll probably have to have a talk about this again, right? <laughs> right. So my brother, James, he came along. So I was born in 73. He was born in 76, July of 76. So, and, he not- and Operation Baby Lift didn't happen until 75, right? Yes. Yes. So you all, you yeah. had about a year or... Yes, a year-ish, you know, I think. You know, I don't know. But yeah, something like that. That I was a, I, you know, I was the only child there for a while. Right? And your brother's not adopted. No, no, no. 
I have a younger brother and a younger sister. So my mm-hmm. brother, I have a, a younger brother, his name's James. And he's like about a year and a half. No, no, he's like three years younger than me and two and a half, three years younger. And then I have a sister named Sarah also. She spells it without an H. And she <laughs> is a, she's about five years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. So. And you're the oldest. That's interesting. I am. And so I always felt that being the oldest and being there before my brother and sister actually gave me, made it easier, I think, to blend with them. You know, like it wasn't like the family was established before I got there. You know, I was there before, before they were there. Yeah. So I think growing up, they saw me as just one of them, right? The older brother. Which is... Yeah. Speaking of of blending, though, that that's a word I wanted to. Was the fact that you were from a different country, an entirely different culture, at all ever addressed or talked about or anything like? No, I mean, just the uh, it was talked like it was just like a matter of fact, you know, it was just like just you're from Vietnam, you know. I could have been from, you know, uh, I could have been from Vietnam. I could have been from Antarctica. I mean, it wouldn't have mattered. My parents, in my opinion, growing up, which I think was good because I think it has helped me as an adult, but it's made it tough as a child, was that my parents did not raise me at all with any of my Vietnamese culture. There was zero, like, like you are one of us. Like you, yeah. like you, you are one of us. So like, there's like, like, we don't see any difference between you, you know, and you are, you're one of us. Right. Which is a double-edged sword, of course, yes. because that's yes. so you are it's so loving and and then it's also like, oh, but you're not honoring where you're actually from. Yeah. But, yeah. And you were in a small it, town. It was, was a, well, we, so we moved around Oklahoma quite a bit. And I wouldn't say a small town. Like, okay, I, I mean, probably, you know, I mean, sometimes I lived in Tulsa, which is a, is a, is a, is a decent sized town. Sometimes we lived in, so we moved around a lot. So I wouldn't say that I would not call it like I lived like rural, you know, where, you know, there was only like, you know, 10 kids in a classroom type thing. You know I mean, but it was small townish Oklahoma at times, right? What I would say is the size of the town didn't matter how I was treated, right? So, mm-hmm. so I was treated the same way, whether I was in a big town or a small town by uh, my. So, and was that how, what was that experience like? Well, so I will say, so, so, you know, we were, we were just touched on how I was raised basically as, as one of my parents own. Right. And so I grew up thinking and believing that I was the same as them. And I remember the first time, I mean, I knew that I was adopted. I knew it was Vietnamese, but I didn't know that children, kids could be such jerks. Right. And so I remember we were out at the lake one time. I was probably like seven or eight years old. And I was playing with my brother and my sister and some kids came up and they started this, this, this older boy started kind of, I don't remember what he said, but it was, but he, he was kind of making racial slurs about it. Right. Wow. And it was, it was at me. Right. I was like, hold on. Like, like, like time out. Like, like, why are you doing that to me? Like, we're on the same team here, guy. Like, like, why You're are, like, you, who like, are you making fun of me? Yeah. Like I didn't understand it. Right. Like, like we're on the same team here. You know, you got your, 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 you know, and it was the fact that I was Asian. Right. And he was making jokes about it right and kind of picking on me wow so that was the first time that i can remember of being made fun of and i i think i was probably about nine years old and then as i got older it escalated right in high school years oh junior high high school like just the the guys making fun of me making jokes making racial jokes and stuff and so but here's the deal so if you ever met my family, and I'm going to like tread lightly here, but my family are pretty like, they're not passive people. They are assertive. And I would say they're beyond assertive, right? And so I was like, <laughs> right? So, I, you know, like, it was kind of like, you just don't take shit from people, right? Yeah. Thing. And so I was raised like that too. And so and you, I think you, you couple that on top of the fact that at some point in my childhood, I harnessed anger, right? Like I realized that anger 
was my friend. It, like anger kept me from feeling these emotions, this, this hurt, right? So I could like, instead of, instead of being, you know, hurt or sad or whatever it is, I could use anger as this tool to deal with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so I fought a lot growing up. Like I would fight, like I was like all the time getting in fights with kids at school, right? You're so, scrappy. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's scrappy. First of all, it's being an angry person anyway as a child. Do you feel like your anger was definitely internal or or was it yeah. learned? Like, do you know what I'm asking? Both. both, both. Okay. Um, I will say that my family as children were we, we were angry like we like angry people i think I, I would say that yes i will say that i'm more angry people so when, when my family calls me up i will defend that we were angry people right so and on top of that i was an angry child i used anger as a way to avoid my feelings my emotions yeah. right not to have to deal with them and so that fed in with my ability to kind of survive right and to you know when so when somebody would make fun of me or say something to me you know i was like I would fight them, right? Or I would try to fight them. And so that happened pretty regularly. I will say that as I got older, I was a awkward. Like, so every once in a while I'll, I'll, on Facebook, I'll, I'll, I'll post a picture of what I looked like as a kid. So up until like, I, maybe I was like seven or eight years old, I was like thin, like thin as a rail, right? And then probably like up until like I turned around 10, I, I kind of chubby and I had like, <laughs> Bad haircuts and just like <laughs> had zero game, right? It's like you already have everything going on, then zero game with the haircuts. Yeah, yeah. so it was like, it was like you know, it's, it's person that's in a kind of a bad situation anyway, emotionally, and then like let's let let, let, let this happen to him, right? So it was definitely you know like if I showed you a picture of what I look net like then when I look now like who I am now. I like definitely was what you would call a late bloomer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like your cheese or wine that got better with age, right? <laughs> I hope you'll share about the meal your parents took. Oh, yeah. So I was talking to my mom. So before I came on the podcast, I, was, I called my mom, like I said, and was asking her about, I was like, first of all, I was wanting to kind of clean up the timeline a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So I was wanting to, but my mom and dad used to tell me the story that when I was about maybe two, maybe about two years old, I think they took me to a Mexican restaurant and for whatever reason, bought me an adult plate of food, right? You know, like, <laughs> I feel like who buys a two-year-old adult by a plate of food? I mean, I thought you bought them like those little, you know, like, you know, a taco and some jello and they get, you know, and, and it'll, you know, they'll, little placement you can color on or something, yeah. you know, maybe that didn't exist back in the, in the 70s. So they bought me an adult plate of food and I, I guess I ate the entire thing. Right. Oh. And so I got to say that when I first came here to the States, my mom said that I actually had a, you know, kind of a, a bloated stomach. My mom will like say that I was an excellent eater. Right. Like I ate everything <laughs> you put in front of me. They found out that I had been hiding food in the mattress, like not in my mattress, like box spring. So I like I they said that I had cut open my box spring and was squirreling food away in there, like a chipmunk or something like that for wintertime. Wow. And so I don't remember this, but I will say that I am a person that when I was a child, whatever was put in front of me, I would eat it. Like it's like, you know, the idea of like not cleaning my plate, just like I mean, I wouldn't do that, right? So for some period of my childhood, there was like this underlying fear of, you know, scarcity of food, you know? So it's like, I think I was, you know, somehow conditioned that when food was presented to me, I need to eat it all because I don't know if I'm going to get another meal, right? Yeah. That's probably lesser of my story as an adult, but it was something that my mom, you know, like, yeah, my mom told me, she's like, you were a great eater. (laughs) (laughs) Reading these this book and just talking to adopted people and finding out like how we cope mm-hmm. with feelings and people do it differently. Like I, you know, there were, there's the pleaser, there's the this and there, there's the that, like that dynamic of, so yours was to be angry and avoid. Did you, when did you finally connect the dots with, you know, everybody has that maybe light bulb moment, like, Oh my God, I was adopted. And I finally <laughs> understand why I went through this and went through that. But, um, you know, I think it was probably in the last five or six years, me and my wife were uh, going through a separation 
it forced me to really take a look at my stuff, right? Because like I said, it was deferred maintenance. It was, I knew that there was things going on in me for a long time, emotions, feelings, and I've always been an emotional person, right? But I've also been a person like for the longest time, wouldn't allow myself to drop down and experience those emotions, right? I used to tell this story that I'm talking to you about right now, like being adopted, and I could tell it hundreds of times, right? But it was just factual. Like I was adopted. I was born mm. in Vietnam, you know? And I remember it's this good friend of mine. And I, I remember telling him the story and then he just paused and he says, man, that story just speaks to me, you know? And it's like, I forgot what he said, but basically the way he reacted to it was this, it was kind of like he was telling me or signaling to me, it's okay to feel sad about that because mm. I'm sad about that. Hearing that story makes me sad. And so he didn't say that it was okay to be sad, but by hearing him be sad about it, I realized that it was okay to have those emotions about that story. Right. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. It used to be like a factual train for you. And then all of a sudden someone's like touched by your story that you're kind of not letting that in. I do suffer, like I said, from a lot of what other adopted children I suffer from, you know, like, you know, attachment and, abandonment oh my god abandonment <laughs> issues are just like it's like yeah that's like the uh, like that's like the you know bane of my existence abandonment <laughs> and, and, and and you know and attachment I, I, i'm the kid that would go to summer camp and like get home from summer camp and be devastated right because i went to church summer camp and like it was like everything was so great and when i got home i was just like devastated like, and the, you know, i got I, I easily can if i allow myself become attached to people right or I can easily feel that somebody's going to abandon me because that was what I experienced, you know, that whole thing. I was, you know, so I remember talking to this woman that worked at World Vision, right? I told you she worked at the orphanage. I remember calling her up. I was really excited. We had kind of started talking on Facebook and she was super nice. So I called her up and I'm just talking to her. And I remember asking her the story. Like I remember like talking to her and I was like really curious on like how the children were treated in the orphanages. Cause I thought that was really important, you know? And by this time I've already had, you know, I've, I've got three children. I've got a, I've got a son named Dustin who uh, was my wife's, you know, he's not my biological son, but I, you know, raised him as my own. So he was like a year and a half old. I've got a daughter who's 17 years old. Her name's Indigo. And I have a son, a 13 year old named Cactus. And the funny thing is both Cactus and Indigo, their middle name is my first name. So it's Indigo Lee, L-Y, or Cactus oh. Lee. And, it, 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 and Cactus is not his given name, but it's his name, Cactus, okay? So, <laughs> so I am familiar with how people bond with their children. I've seen it firsthand, right, as being a father and seeing their mother bond with them through, you know, the childbirth and that whole process, nurture, nature, it's all together, right? I remember asking this woman, I said, so I just have a quick question. I was like, did you guys ever hold those babies? You know, like hold them, love them. You might have been feeding them and you might have been taking care and changing their diapers. But, you know, like, you know, you can imagine that these babies are scared, you know, and sad and lonely because they're like, we're taken away from wherever they're at, you know. And, you know, so I remember asking her that and she didn't know this. I had my phone on silent because I was crying as I was asking this question. Did you hold those babies? Like, that was like an important thing. She's like, yeah, we held those babies. Yeah, you wonder because you had a long time before you were with your family. So it's like, and that that is a, that's, you know, almost an older child in a, in a, in a a toddler. toddler. Mm -hmm. Well, that is, yeah. yeah. It's very important, you know, the, if you've gotten love or. Yeah. I've been in a lot of therapy, like as an adult, God, like, you know, I've told Sarah, like, I could have bought a nice car for the amount of money that I spent on therapy, right? In fact, when I finish this podcast, I'm going to go see my therapist. And I love her to death. She's probably saved my life several times, literally and emotionally, physically, right? So the other thing that I'm struggling with is that, you know, like inside me exists like this child, right? This child that's sad and scared and lonely, and it's touched all the time, you know, like, uh, like if I allow it to be touched, you know, by people in my life or by life experiences, And one thing that I am trying to do as an adult is realize that at the end of the day, I'm the only person 
that to take care of that child. At the end of the day, I'm the only person that's going to, be able to take care of that child that's at that orphanage crying. And I can remember, like, and I've done this, I've done like this projection where I like fall asleep and I'll be thinking about that baby. And like, I am there talking to that child and holding it and loving it and embracing it and telling you like, I will never abandon you. Oh, makes me cry. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's that for me, at least it's like this constant fear of being abandoned. And I, I said, I can't figure this shit out. Like that. I am the one that has to be there for myself. Right. Because as much as you want to rely on somebody else that loves you, husbands, wives, children, they can all be taken away from you. They can't fill that. That's right. They cannot. It takes a long time to figure that out. Yeah. And so, and I'm still figuring it out. You know, yeah. I sleep with a teddy bear. So I was in the Navy. I have my dog tags from when I was in the Navy. And so I've got this teddy bear that I sleep with that has about my dog tags on. This is, you know, it's John Fry. And so, and that teddy bear is me. You know, at the end of the day, when I'm alone, I don't have anybody else. I fall asleep, you know, holding this teddy bear. That's beautiful. I, I was uh, recently on travel for work. I left my teddy bear in a hotel room, right? And the people called me and they're like, we found a bear in your room, but it seems like it's probably a pretty important thing, right? They figure it out, right? So I called my coworker who was up in the area and I said, hey, I need you to go get my bear for me. Right? <laughs> Can you get my teddy bear? <laughs> he was totally cool with it. He was totally cool with it, you know? Like, whatever you got to do, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you gotta do, dude. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, I was like, oh, yeah. right, so, so I don't know. Um, I don't know where we're at uh, as far as my story. I will say that as an adult, I'm okay with being Vietnamese. Like that's like I am totally. In fact, it's probably served me well being Vietnamese, being Asian. At various times in my life, when I have uh, longer hair, I get mistaken for other nationalities. Right. So mm-hmm. growing up in Oklahoma. I would pretend like I was a uh, Native American when I would meet people because <laughs> it was more acceptable to be Native American than Asian at times, right? So yeah, that's remember, America. Yeah. So, so yeah. America. So, I would, I would, I would blend in as a Native American out in the West, like uh, you know Arizona or in that you know in that area. You know, there's a lot of uh, Native Americans out there, so I blend in very well there. Uh, yeah. When I'm in a visiting Mexico, I can kind of pass myself off as as Mexican, right? So. <laughs> The joke is I have a good friend of mine and he's like, so you're like the Lou Diamond Phillips, right? Yeah, I was going to say so, that. Yeah, like, 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 what is Lou Diamond Phillips? I mean, like, <laughs> you kind of know what he is, but you kind of don't, right? He plays so, so many roles. Yeah. And like, jokingly, I can like, I have like, at least three months I get to celebrate at, at work. You know, I work for the government. So like, you know, they're very diverse and I you know, they promote a diverse workforce. And so, you know, I'm like a... You know, I I I feel like I get Native American month, I get uh, <laughs> I get Hispanic month, and I get Asia Pacific Islander month. So I get to celebrate lots of months, right? <laughs> they can count me a bunch of times. You know, they can, uh, when you went to Vietnam, did you find anything out about your birth mother? So I went to Vietnam. Do not speak Vietnamese. I'm five foot ten. I probably weigh about 180, 85 pounds, right? Yeah. I don't know how many Vietnamese friends you have. Yeah. But, like you're not the norm. When I was there, I kind of stood out. Maybe I've asked you this before, but I wonder if your birth father was like a GI. Nope. I already gone down that road. I did the oh. 23 and me. Uh-huh. And yeah, I am. I used, I was hoping that my birth father was British. Then I could like, go around and try to speak with a British accent. Right. That's, that's not <laughs> like, but no, I'm not. I, uh, like about two or three years ago, I did the 23 and me and I am straight up. No bones about it. Asian, right? So, yeah. so like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Asian, no Asian, bones Asian, about Asian. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Asian, Asian, Asian. So, yeah, I was hoping like something exotic, you know, like Swiss or, oh, yeah. you know, no, it wasn't it. I will tell you this, going back to Vietnam was, was emotionally, I thought it was going to be more healing than it was. Hmm. It wasn't as healing that I was hoping it would be. When you don't know the answer to something and you can make up your own answer your head like the whole gi thing right like like oh that's why i'm so tall i obviously am half you know french canadian german whatever whatever gi was there right but that's not the truth and so i think part of not wanting to uh, go back to vietnam was 
I could make up my own stories. I could construct my own reality in my head about what it was going to be like going back there. Right. Because I thought, because I really thought going back there was going to be this like groundbreaking thing. And it wasn't, it was, it was, it was actually really hard. Not speaking human language. It's a culture that's totally unlike our Western culture. And I didn't have a translator. I was alone. I did a lot of traveling. I wrote a little blog when I was there. I was writing some little blogs and I would meet women all the time, like as I was walking along and I would, you know, like, I'd be, I'd be, could that be my mom? Could that be my mom? You know, uh, yeah. like, like, I'd be like looking at people, I was like, could that be my mom? You know, just like things like that. I think sometimes when I would speak to people, there was an expectation that I would be able to speak with means and I didn't. And so it was like a, truly a stranger in a strange land, right? Yeah. And then also going back to Vietnam, I had survivor's guilt, right? So my, my having come here and you know, where we're at in this world and, and the life we live is really luck of the draw, right? Yes. Could have, you know, I mean, it's really luck, you know, and I just, you know, I guess I you could say that I won the lottery by being able to be on that plane and come here, you know, living the life I have. But I've also wondered, like, what would have my life been if I stayed in Vietnam, you know, and what would that yeah. have looked like for me? Maybe I wouldn't have had good health care. Maybe my teeth wouldn't be as bad as they are now, you know, like maybe a little bit worse than they are now. Maybe I would, maybe my nutrition would be different, but you know, I would have been with, I guess my people, you know, I would have been in my culture. Yeah. You know, so you don't know, right. I did experience survivor's guilt when I was there because I saw there's still extreme poverty in Vietnam, right. Yeah. I'm guessing being an orphan, chances of, being successful are kind of probably be less, you know, than coming from family and, you know, being raised in the orphanage and stuff. I went down to uh, that, that town where I was born at Kinto and hung around there for a while. But, you know, in the end, it did not provide me the closure that I thought it might. Yeah. And so yeah. that was a little disappointing. I expended a lot of emotional capital to go back to Vietnam. You know, it wasn't what I was hoping it was. You know, with advances in technology or whatever, it might still be that you'll find somebody at some point if you so, want to. That uh, I've thought about that, you know. So, like, you know, I've heard your guys's, you know, I remember when my daughter Indigo was born. So, I, so I, I had my, we, I have a, a, an adopted son, Dustin, who's my wife's biological son. And so, for the first 10 years of his life, he was an only child. And I went to great, so like, I had really struggled with wanting to have my own biological child, right? First of all, being an adopted child, I never wanted to send any kind of signals to Dustin that he was any less than, right? Yeah. And so I went to great lengths. You know, it was, like, it was a lot of discernment before, you know, we went down this road of having, um, you know, my own biological child. And so when Indigo was born, I can remember when she was born, I was like so excited. And then I like ran away to the bathroom and just cried. Right. Because, and then like, it was like, finally, I was not alone. And I know that I was not alone, you know, like, and I, I remember posting that on Facebook a couple of years ago, like every time she has a birthday, I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll say, hey, like, you have no idea how much you, I love you and how much you mean to me. And that, you know, up until your birth, I was really alone because you guys have talked about this. My brother, my, my adopted brother can see himself in my father, can see himself in my, my, my mom, yeah. my, my, our younger sister, Sarah. You guys talked about this. You see the euphemism. You see like little traits, characteristics, you know, that, that we pick up. That's, I think it's nurture and nature, right, that are, that, that are there. Yeah. Um, and being adopted, not having anybody like that was, you know, like I didn't have that, right? I have no family history, like zero, you know. So that's easy. Like whenever I go to the doctor, they're like, do you have any family history of cancer? Nope. <laughs> nope. Like, like I can like, I can just like mark them really quick. Right. So, <laughs> so, you know, so, so it is kind of beneficial sometimes, but when my daughter was born, yes, I was not alone. I was no longer alone. And I will also say that it's probably one of the first times in my life after holding her and caring her and, and caring for her, that I was able to really to experience love. 
right? Yeah. Because yeah, we both I was giving love. There was this thing, there's this child that, you know, like I unconditionally, like, like, like it was like, I went, I didn't have to be taught it. It was just like instinctual. Like, you know, like I love this thing, right? Like I love this child, right? That was helpful. Me being able to, I still have a hard time accepting love. I still have a hard time receiving it, but I'm and definitely give. better for it having indigo. And I also have a, a son, a uh, cactus. He's like, like I said, he's 13 and he's still, he is also, you know, you know, I, I have similar, a uh, similar bond with him, but since he came in second, he, you know, he like, he, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, like it wasn't as groundbreaking with him as it was my daughter Indigo. Yeah. So I definitely have a, I want to say stronger bond. I have a different bond with her than I have with my son. It's no less more, or it's just, it's different. Right. Yeah. Amazing. So, this has just been, a, a, I know we're like, we could talk all night or ask questions over and over, but we have to wrap it up at some point. I think this has just been, I mean, hearing you talk is really emotional. Yeah. <laughs> very emotional. I'm just like blown away. You've really, you're an amazing person too. Thank you. I mean, I think, well, I think, you know, um, Sarah said this, everybody has a story to tell, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if everybody has a story to tell, you know, and I think it's also like, you know, like how they tell it, you know, so some people have, you know, maybe a uh, not as good of a story, but are able to tell the story better. But I, this is a story that I've I've always been able to tell the story, but to be able to tell the story and experience the emotions that are associated with it for me uh, is more important than telling the story. You know, oh, yeah. the well, it sounds like you are. Maybe nobody would describe themselves as like emotionally healthy, but it it, it certainly sounds like you're a healthy way of looking at things and the way you're trying to address these issues is, you know, head on. It's a scary, scary thing. And it's yeah, really it's impressive to do that. Wow. It's hard. You know, many people just run away from it. Uh, myself included have done run away so much in, in my own life. So hearing you be so vulnerable and talk so yeah. honestly and has been really great. It's been really, yeah. I feel like we, it's a, just, I feel enriched. I feel really from, lucky to have yes. you on this podcast. Me too. I feel enriched from this experience. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I'm very happy to have uh, been a part of what you guys are doing here and stuff. And I think it's, uh, I think uh, it, uh, can, I hope it's beneficial to you know somebody out there. That's. Uh, I think it would be beneficial to others. You know, I yeah. definitely think so. I think, I think, I think a lot of people are going to really feel a lot when they hear this story. I do too. <laughs> Okay, well, on that note, <laughs> not note. <laughs> well, thank you, thank for you, me. thank you, John. Oh, John, really. thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. <laughs>